Good morning. It's good to see you. It's good to hear you. My name is Chad Myers. I'm our adult discipleship director. Welcome this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us online. I believe God has something for us wherever you are. And uh, it's a privilege to be in this room with you. It's been a little bit since I've been with you here. And uh, I, I do believe, though, there was a few weeks ago, Pastor Trevor called and said he sounded like a frog, so he wasn't going to show up on that Sunday. And so they streamed uh, me into the service here, and I was on the screen. And uh, you were so gracious to allow that and to participate in that. So thank you. I couldn't see or hear you. Uh, I wish it would have gone both ways. That would have been really great. But uh, I'm here with you today. And so um, it's my honor to do that and to be here with you. Uh, there's a few things in the country uh, that I think that when we speak about them, we should speak with a tone of graciousness and delicacy. Daylight savings time is not one of those. I think it deserves the full-fledged wrath of an imprecatory psalm. And, uh, you know, I was awake at 4 a.m. this morning, and all I could think was, this was 3 a.m. just the other day. This was 3 a.m. <laughs> And uh, I don't mind getting up early, but this morning, for me, there was some especially weeping and gnashing of teeth. Today, we are continuing our series, Outside the Box, and we are going to look at moving from comfort to a cause, from comfort to a cause. Uh, Recently, in the past few years, there was a biopic film made based loosely on the life of P.T. Barnum. It was a musical The Greatest Showman, you may be familiar with it. And uh, in that movie, P.T. Barnum thinks outside of the box. He wants people to come and see all of these strange things, these strange and different weird types of people. And he wants uh, wants to wow people. And then it basically, you know, turns into he creates this idea called the circus where people come and pay money to see outside the box events, outside the box experiences. And there's a, a song in the middle where he meets a playwright known as Philip Carlyle. Philip Carlyle is a, a fictional character in this story. But he meets Philip Carlyle, and he wants him to join his adventures. He wants him to join his creative journey. And they sing a great duet called The Other Side. And in this song, here's some of the lyrics. P.T. Barnum basically invites him to get out of his box and come and join the adventure of the circus. He says, Don't you want to get out of the drudgery and the walls that keep you in? So trade that typical for something colorful. And if it's crazy, live a little crazy. You can play it sensible, a king of conventional, or you can risk it all and see. Don't you want to get away from the same old part you got to play? And then Philip Carlyle banters back, I quite enjoy the life that you say I'm trapped in. Don't you know I'm okay with this uptown part I get to play? If I were mixed up with you, I'd be the talk of the town, disgraced and disowned, another one of the clowns. And then with a heartfelt plea, P.T. Barnum says, is this really how you like to spend your days? Whiskey, misery, parties, plays? But if you came with me, you'd finally live a little, finally laugh a little. Just let me give you the freedom to dream, and it'll wake you up and cure your aching. Take your walls and start them breaking. What a beautiful picture of someone inviting someone else to get outside the box, to get outside of the comfort zone, of the comfort trap. Specialists tell us that you need enough comfort to move beyond survival, where you're not just thinking, 
you know, is there a tiger in the bushes and where am I going to get my next meal? But beyond that, too much comfort can be dangerous for us. It poisons our soul, it deadens our soul, it numbs our mind. And, and the box can be a metaphor for our comfort zone. We like things as we've always done them. We like people around us that make us feel comfortable. We don't like things and people around us that make us feel uncomfortable. And I almost think that this is a picture, this song banter back and forth of God saying to us day by day, don't you want to get out on this great adventure that I've invited you to. Don't you want to risk a little, live a little, maybe risk some comfort to be a part of a cause bigger than yourself? And you and I are no different than the early church. There wasn't necessarily anything more special about them than us, and so they faced this battle too. And as we continue in the book of Acts, we're going to see that they struggled with the comfort trap. You remember that Jesus, in some of his last words, he, he told us to go. He told the disciples to go and make disciples, baptize, teach everybody in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then again in Acts 1.8, Luke tells it like this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Where? In Judea, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see this movement and yet, here we are in Acts chapter 6, and we're going to see some things that should cause us to raise awareness of, well, where are they? And how's the mission going? And are they being effective? Or are they trapped in comfort? So I'd like to start us off with this question to get us moving today. How do we move from communal comfort to missional community? They're very different how do we move from communal comfort where we, we like everyone around us who thinks like us, talks like us, looks like us, acts like us, smells like us, dresses like us, listens to the same music as us, eats the same kind of grilled cheeses as us, to being a community that is on mission, to being a community that says, you know what, it's a bit messy here, we don't have it all figured out, but God's called us to do something bigger than ourselves. We're going to see just how to do that in the book of Acts or how that happens, so to speak. So Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says this. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem. Now, if you're a Bible underliner or highlighter, just go ahead and underline in Jerusalem. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became, became obedient to the faith. So this is Acts chapter 6. You know where we were in Acts chapter 3, 4, and 5. Uh, they were in Jerusalem. Pentecost had happened. Tongues of fire over the disciples. Peter stands up, preached. 3,000, a church of 3,000 built in a day. 3,000 people come to Christ, and then people continue to come to Christ. There's effective preaching. God's doing miracles through the Holy Spirit, through the apostles. And people keep coming into the church. And that's what it says here in 6-7. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And yet, and yet, if we're careful readers of the text, there's a few other words that we should be looking at thinking, well, where are they at? You see, remember in Acts 1-8 it said, you'll be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem. And then where else? In Judea and in Samaria. So we're several chapters later, 
and the movement's still in Jerusalem. You see, sometimes the text shows us instead of saying it explicitly. Here we are, and this mission is supposed to be carried out, and it's supposed to be in places where people don't think, act, talk like us. Judea, Samaria, ooh, people make us really uncomfortable, and we're in Jerusalem. There's always this temptation to be in the comfort trap, the comfort zone, the box around us, and the box will continually close in unless we push against it. You see, one of the things this illustrates is that when we seek community, we don't get mission, and we actually don't get community. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, let me say it differently, and then I'll try to explain. When we seek mission, we get mission, and community is a result. You see, I would argue that true, healthy Life-giving community is always the byproduct of something. It's not an end in itself. You notice this. When you join a small group or you join a Bible study, you join a church, and you start to get around people, then you start to say, what's in it for me? How are you guys meeting my needs? How are you taking care of me? Notice who's at the center of the conversation. And we start to think that the community exists for ourselves, and then we don't get mission, and we actually don't get community. We become very frustrated because we start to think, well, you guys aren't really doing it for me. You guys aren't really doing it for me. But when we seek mission, we actually get mission, and community is a byproduct. And if you've ever been on a, a mission trip, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We used to go... When we, when we were in St. Louis, my family was, we used to go down to uh, Juarez, Mexico. It's a, a very small town just on the other side of El Paso, um, separated by the Rio Grande. And uh, you may have seen photos. There's a river. It's the Rio Grande running down. And on this side, um, it's wealthy houses on one side of the hill. looks looks very affluent. And on the other side, it's, it's cardboard city. Um, and that's Juarez. And uh, you may know Juarez because of all the cartel movement there and the news. But we used to go down into Juarez and we would take middle schoolers, we would take high schoolers. I'm not sure if the parents actually knew what they were signing their kids up for. Because I was a youth pastor and I was like, are you guys sure you want your kids to go into Juarez with us? And yeah, yeah, go for it, go for it. So we'd load up like 40 or 50 middle schoolers and high schoolers and two people movers. It's amazing what youth ministry used to get away with, isn't it? <laughs> And so we'd go down to Juarez, and we had three days to build a house. So we'd travel for two days, two days, 12-hour drive each day. We'd get in El Paso, we'd sleep, we'd cross the border, we'd get into Juarez, and then we had three days to build a house. And we say house, um, it, let me define that for you. It was one, one room, it had a concrete slab, it had walls, it had windows, it had a roof, there was no running water, there's no heater air, but that was a luxury mansion in Juarez. That was safe and protective and it was a, a upgrade to say the least. And so we would get there and the challenge was you got three days to build this house and you got to stay on schedule because the next group coming in and they need to build another house. And you faced many obstacles in doing this. Um, some of the people would get sick because of the travel and everything, um, or they drank the water. That's a no-no. Um, sometimes we'd battle weather, like it would rain all morning, and then we'd have to go out, and we'd have to lay the concrete slab, and would it dry right with the sun, or was it going to be too cold that night that we'd have to wait? Sometimes the materials were wrong. We'd get bad materials, and we'd have to have the, the builder go get different materials. All of these obstacles to face this common goal but, but us and the youth, the youth around us, we were so passionate about, we've got to build this house. And we would meet the family, and, and we would be on this mission. If we, 
we've got to accomplish this mission. And some of you know that in a different experience, in a different sphere, in a different realm of life, and you know what I'm about to tell you is 100% true, that the students would say to us, we love these trips. We've never felt so close to each other. We feel like we know each other. We got to know each other in deep spiritual ways. We feel like we have true, genuine community. And guess what? It's because community, healthy community is always a byproduct of a people being on mission and finding a cause bigger than themselves. And maybe you're like, what's missing in our marriage? Well, is your marriage on mission? What's missing in our friendships is your friendship on mission. What's missing in our family? Do you find and fight for something bigger than your comfort? And I'm speaking to myself. A lot of this is a sermon to me, and I'm just inviting you to listen to that conversation. But when we seek mission, we get mission, and community is a result. It's a byproduct. Just as an afterthought here, Luke kind of tags this in, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Please don't miss that. We'll read right past that. You remember all those challenging conversations that Jesus had with the Pharisees and the religious leaders? All those things that felt like he was judging and condemning them, but I would argue it was a motive of love. It just had a really sharp edge to the tone. You see that? It was effective. It took root. It was a severe mercy, but look at the fruit that it bore. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. You see, sometimes we have to let others outside of the box that we've constructed for them. I don't know about them, God. I don't know about that person. They're really far from you. They used to be close to you, but they don't want anything to do with you now. They're so angry at you, or they're so skeptical. Can we let others outside of the box that we've constructed for them? Because as long as a person is living and breathing, there's always hope for God to move in their life. Let's keep going. Acts chapter 6, 7 through 9. It says this in verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, a leader in the church, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen. Such a formal, important name. You can almost imagine these guys had leather jackets with patches on the back. Synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces, they didn't have a cool name, of Cilicia, I get that right, and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. So... The church is growing, it's increasing rapidly, thousands upon thousands are gathering together, and yet opposition arises. And so Stephen has a choice. What's he going to do? Is he going to address the opposition? Is he going to say anything? Or is he going to say, you know what, this is, this is getting a little dicey. Um, I didn't know this was going to cost me anything. I didn't know that people might identify me as a Christ follower. I didn't know that this is what I signed up for, why don't we just withdraw? Let's go back to the praying about it type thing. Why don't we do that? And Stephen has a choice to make. He's, his box is being pressed on. And the question is, will he respond to that call or not? And he does. He chooses. He chooses to engage in it, and he actually chooses to preach a sermon. And we won't get into the whole thing. It's the whole of chapter 7, essentially. He, he, Stephen goes all the way back to Abraham and to Moses and then to David, and he finally gets to the prophets and to Jesus because he wants to make his point, which is this. You persecuted and killed the promised Messiah just like your fathers 
persecuted the prophets. They were speaking God's truth and you didn't like it so much that you killed them. And Jesus came as the new revelation of who God is, embodying God's truth and grace, and you didn't like him so much that you killed him, and so he levels this charge at them. You don't listen. You never hear. You're slow to believe. And you crucified God. And it makes them so angry. And the Bible says that they grind their teeth at him. You ever, you ever made somebody that mad? They grind their teeth at Stephen. And then he says this, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What's going on here? Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, they're killing him with heavy rocks. Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. Stephen is known as the proto-martyr, the first martyr for the faith. He gives his life because of his witness to Christ, and they kill him. They execute him because he was a believer. Now, what is going on at the end of his speech, and what vision does he see, and why does this make them so angry? If you remember, Jesus gets accused of the, some of the same things, this blasphemy. So Jesus, at the end of Mark, he weaves together two passages, and one of the passages that he quotes from is Daniel chapter 7, and he says this, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with glory. And that was it. He says that, and all the religious leaders want to kill him for that. Why? Because in Daniel chapter 7, it says something like this. And there was one like a son of man next to the ancient of days. To whom it was given dominion and power and glory and honor and a kingdom. So you have two figures in Daniel 7. That didn't quite fit in the Jewish box of one God. And you have two figures, and one figure is giving the other honor and glory and a kingdom, something that was only given to God Almighty. Jesus says this, he quotes Daniel 7, applies it to himself, and the religious leaders are ready to kill him. Stephen sees this vision. Jesus is standing at the right hand, one like a son of man, standing at the right hand. What is he saying? It makes them so angry. He's saying this that Jesus is the resurrected king, now ascended, reigning on the throne of David, and he is alive and well, and he receives my testimony about him. What I say to you is true. He's resurrected, and he's reigning right now. This makes them want to kill him. Friends, resurrection is always 
an outside-of-the-box concept. People don't just rise from the dead. People don't just die and then rise from the dead. And yet, one of the foundations of the Christian faith, we said it earlier together, is that you and I, if we are in Christ, though we die, we rise again and live forever. And I would argue this, as we are moving up towards Easter, the hope of the resurrection is the only antidote in the face of all the fear that we find today. It's the only antidote. No system, political, societal, historical, can answer the fear that we all face except the resurrection of Christ. To know that my hope is in him and that because he rose from the grave, guess what? We get to rise from the grave. It's always an outside-the-box concept. People don't always take a liking to it, and nevertheless, it's our truth that we hold on to. One of the things we see in this passage is that true power is not in crosses and stones, but in sacrifice and death. That's a, a quote directly from the one and only Pastor Trevor Miller. You may have heard of him. <laughs> Sometimes Pastor Trevor is more smarter than me. And so I read this this week and I said, hey man, what do you mean? True power is not in crosses and stones, but in sacrifice and death. Well, he said this, you know, there's a power that seems like power. The Roman power of the cross and the Jewish power of the stone to kill, but it only has a power to destroy. But true power, true divine, life-giving, resurrection, fruit-bearing power, forever power, actually consists in sacrifice and death. One looks like it's more powerful, but one actually lasts into eternity. True power is not in crosses and stones. It's not always measurable. It's not always what we see. It's not always tangible, but it is in sacrifice and death. And here Stephen willingly chooses to present a speech that gets him sacrificed by stoning and experiences true life-giving, fruit-bearing, resurrection power. We know that violence only begets violence. Nothing can be solved through violence. Nothing redemptive can be solved through violence. Physical, verbal, only true power is found in self-sacrifice and death to self. Where are our Stevens today? Can we be a Stephen? Can we die to self? Can we not react when we're triggered? Can we not say that, thing, that first thing that comes to our mind and we rationalize, well, it's a little bit violent, but it's the truth. Can we say, no, there's something I need to die to. There's things that I need to sacrifice. Let's, let's keep going. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. On that day after Stephen's death, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy, this word means damage or spoil, the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. 
Now you see, you see that the death of Stephen caused the great disruption. Caused a great disruption. And it says, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. Now, notice again, what did I ask you to underline earlier? Underline Jerusalem. Notice again the connection, the linguistic connection with Acts 1, chapter 8. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Look at this. The great persecution breaks out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were what? Scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Luke is saying something here. He's saying that they had part of the mission going on, but they didn't have the full expression of the mission going on. And God actually used persecution. I'm not saying he caused it, but he actually used persecution to take this mission and help it reach its fullest expression. And I would argue potentially left to their own devices they would have stayed in Jerusalem. This is good here. It's comfortable here. I like this box. There's a lot of people around us. Look at this. This is, this is the momentum. Don't we have to capitalize on the moment? Why would we divide now? Why would we? This doesn't make any sense. And yet a great persecution comes, and it's the persecution that actually causes them to be more missionally effective and missionally minded. The word scattered here is diaspero. Diaspora, scattered about. They're scattered about Judea and Samaria. It actually has this farming connotation. Now, you probably can tell by the look of me that I'm not a farmer. I don't know much about it either. But there's this connotation of a farmer scattering seed. And we see that God is using this persecution to scatter the church so that they can spread the word wherever they go. This is the forerunner, by the way, for all the epistles of the New Testament, that the gospel is going and it's being spread because there's this great persecution in Jerusalem and people are getting out. This is the forerunner also for the conversion of Saul. God uses this great discomfort, this great disruption, this great pain to advance his cause, his mission. Spring, you can see the signs of spring all around us. You can hear the birds in the air. You can smell it in the air. You see the blooms coming back in the trees and in the lawn. And we got dandelions in our yard. Anyone else? Got dandelions, yeah. And dandelions, when you're a homeowner, they're like no fun. Because you look out and you're like, ah, I got to take care of these dandelions. And you think I'll get to that in three days. But in three days, when you go back out, there's like 100 dandelions. Now, maybe it's your neighbor five houses down who hasn't done anything to their yard in the past year. I'm not speaking from personal experience. <laughs> but when you're a kid, not a homeowner, dandelions are awesome. Because you look at these dandelions, and then they turn all white. And what do kids do? They want to kick them. They want to take them. They want to wave them in the wind. They want to pick them up, and they want to <sighs> blow them and scatter the seed. Do you know the same word for Holy Spirit is actually the same word for wind or breath? And the seed of the church is scattered so that they can fall into the ground, be buried, take root, bear fruit, and then be scattered again. This is how it works. This is the process of transformation. This is the growth process that we're all invited to.
How is God breathing on you and inviting you to get out of your box? What scattering is he attempting in your life and in my life? And Stephen here is a great example of a seed that gets buried into the earth and then his death bears fruit. Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We may not be called upon to give our lives for Jesus, and yet we're still called to die to self every day. I, would, I think it's discomfort that dispatches us from our boxes. It's discomfort. And this is hard for us. This is hard for me. I'm a comfort seeker. I love comfort. I find it through food. I find it through rest. I find it through watching sports. In and of itself, those are not all bad things. But you know what? Our box, those walls aren't static. They actually move in. Slowly, but surely. We, uh, we like fantasy stories in our house, and so I grew up watching Star Wars in the 80s, and um, one of the things that we make our kids suffer through is that we force our childhood back onto them. We're like, well, we did this as kids. You're going to do it too. So, like, we love, we love Star Wars, though, and so we made our kids watch this Star Wars movie marathon. We had them do it in, like, three days because it was a snow day, and so we were... It, snow. It's white stuff falls, and they cancel school. It's amazing. <laughs> um, I'm joking. I know you know what snow is. Uh, but we, 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 we did like the first three and then the second three Star Wars like all in one. Some of our kids couldn't take it anymore. They're like, stop with the Star Wars movies. But there's Star Wars 4, A New Hope. There's this scene where they all get trapped in what's like a trash compactor. And they're all down there, Chewie and Han Solo and the princess and Luke. They're all down there. And the walls are static. But all of a sudden, they start to close in. And slowly but surely, they keep moving in. Here's one of the greatest illusions about our box, is that we think the walls are static, and we think they'll stay there. And we think if we just keep doing the same old thing, then we can get out of our box, but we can't. If we don't actively move against the box, it's constantly closing in on us, and our world gets smaller, and our need for comfort gets greater. It's pain that pushes us past the perimeter. As much as we don't like it, it is true. And those of you more seasoned in your faith, you know it's true. You don't readily choose it, but you learn to not resist it. You don't readily go seek it, but you learn that there's something deeper going on when it comes your way. This is what James says. Consider it pure joy when trials and comes your way because God's doing something deeper in your faith. He's growing you a, a deeper, more mature person. This is what Peter says. This fiery trial, find it all joy that this fiery trial has come upon you because it's doing what? Purifying your faith. Guess what? Pain purifies our faith. Persecution purifies the church. Not as in it's getting rid of the bad people. That's not what I mean. But if there's any of us that's sitting on the fence, it causes us to make a commitment. John 12, 24 says this. Very truly, I tell you, 
Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. If we try to hold on to our comfort, we will lose a sense of purpose and meaning and adventure. But if we die to it, we will gain fruit, growth, resurrection power, excitement, life-giving flow of the Holy Spirit. That's just how it works. You can't have resurrection without death. As much as you and I may like to choose, I would love to jump straight to Easter Sunday and celebrate resurrection life, but you and I both know that we must first pass through Good Friday. And this is not a one-time thing. This is a daily occurrence. Death, resurrection, death, resurrection, death, resurrection. We come to find that the only voluntary way outside the box is sacrifice. It's sacrifice. There's a, there's a few postures that get us thinking and maybe feeling outside of the box. Curiosity is a great one. That's a great posture to have. I don't know everything about the world. I don't know everything about God. I don't know everything about you, but I would love to know more. I would love to hear your story. I would love to know why you think how you think and where you're coming from, and I would love to understand before being understood. Curiosity is a great posture to help us get outside the box. Humility. Some of the most spiritually mature people I know are less concerned with other people's weaknesses and sins because they're very in tune with their own brokenness and need for Jesus. And they keep that in the forefront of their mind. But those are postures. And I think there's only one action that gets us out of the box. You say, if I want to get out of the box, what do I have to do? Well, you have to push against your discomfort. You have to sacrifice. We, uh, so a year ago today, we were in the interview process of coming to Mount Horeb. Most of you wouldn't know that, um, but I was here, I was speaking for Chi Alpha, and I was gonna preach in the auditorium, but it was also a year ago today that the country was wrestling with what are we gonna do about the pandemic? Um, uh, do we shut down? What's going on? Schools uh, be began to close that weekend. We began to wrestle with, should we even have Sunday church? A lot of churches closed that very weekend. Um, they, we, we went ahead and stayed open here, and I preached in the auditorium to a less than half full auditorium, and that began the pandemic. But it also began our conversations more in depth about coming to Mount Horeb, of us and our family, our four kids, and um, it was Easter Sunday was a huge uh, movement point for us where we just said, we watched Mount Horeb online, and both me and my wife kind of looked at each other and kind of knew, like, yeah, I think this is it. This is what God's calling us to do. And in many ways, and in many ways, we sacrificed, and I'm not trying to play a martyr, but we sacrificed. That, that life that would have been in St. Louis is dead. It's over. My story's not there anymore. Our story's not there anymore. Our story's here with you. And we can see, we haven't been here even a year, but we can see small seeds going into the ground and bearing fruit. And we see this scattering going on. And I know you know this because from everything I know about you so far, you're a sacrificial people. 
You're a generous people. You're a hospitable people. If you weren't, I probably wouldn't be here. But when I came into this very room, I thought to myself, these people love well and they are excited to be at church. That's, you don't find that everywhere. And yet God calls us to continue to press those walls and to sacrifice. So what's God inviting you today, Mount Horeb? Where is God inviting you to voluntarily step outside again of the box and sacrifice? We are continually trying to reopen well. And one of the things that we really has been on our calendar to do is to reopen kids' ministry at 9 o'clock. We had a conversation with a person this week that said, I can't get my kids into the 1045. It fills up so fast. And my kids haven't been to church in over a year, and it's killing us. But guess what? In order to do that, we need more sacrifice. We just do. We, we can't do it because we don't have the volunteer power. We're ready to do it, but we can't do it. And I'm not asking you to put your health on the line. I'm really not. But for those of us who are comfortable with that, and for those of us who are willing, that sacrifice at the 9 o'clock hour, it allows more families to come, to be built into. It allows kids to hear more about Jesus and deepen their faith and learn how to pray. It's this type of falling into the ground that causes seeds to be scattered, that causes growth to come forth. And we get to see Jesus move on a full expression of mission. I'll close with this. Acts 8, 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Those who had been scattered. Wherever they were, Judea, Samaria, those are just regions, small towns, large cities, whoever they were, old, young, male, female, parents, single, Wherever they were, whoever they were, they preached the word. They spread the message. They lived lives outside the box. And the mission of God continued to go and grow effectively. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your scriptures. We thank you for your truth. God, we thank you for its challenge, its comfort, its invitation. God, I know there's places in my life where I'm very content to do the same thing, very content to continue to find comfort. And Father, the further along I get, I feel like the more and more I crave it. So give us more courage. Give us that Holy Spirit-enabled backbone to push against the discomfort to push against the comfort, to choose discomfort, to say, I want to be about a cause rather than simply playing it safe. I want to be about something and someone bigger than myself. Help us do that. And you show us the way. We want resurrection life. And you hand us a cross. Say, carry it. Trust me, this will lead to resurrection life but you have to pass through death first. God, help us. Choose again this day to decide to follow you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.